and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans, by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, October 21st, we are studying Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 to 27. News of the peace between Gibeon and Israel sends several allied armies against Gibeon, but the Lord promises Joshua that he will be victorious over these enemies. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippek. Pastor Philippek serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippek, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks. Good to be with you and greetings to our listeners in the name of our crucified, risen, reigning Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and who is to come. Pastor Philippek, we're looking at Joshua 10, the first part of it this morning. What should we know about context as we prepare to look at this section of God's Word? You guys have been doing a good job with the background of Joshua going through Joshua, so I don't want to bring up a whole lot, perhaps just further back than Joshua, to remind our listeners, because this is a very tough chapter. I mean, it's war, it's bloodshed all over the place, executions, oh my. But to remind our listeners of what God told Moses would happen in fulfillment of the promise he made to Abraham and ultimately to Adam. There on Sinai, God said to Moses and Moses then to Joshua, Moses's right-hand man, heard this as well through Moses. He said to Moses, though God did, they shall not dwell in your land, meaning the inhabitants, right? Lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So in the context of talking about where they are headed from Sinai to the promised land, God says, when you get there, you are to utterly destroy all who are in your path. Blot out their name. That's what God's going to do. He's going to blot out their name. And you might think, whoa, this is not like the God of, of mercy and love. And, and, and what is all of this? Because uh, this is death and destruction. And, but in the context of all of this, God gives that command that if they cohabit the land, then they will begin to worship other gods. Again, this comes up in Deuteronomy. You know, this is going to break the first commandment. So God commands them not only to put to death the idolatrous people in the land, and we'll get to that as we go forward, the idolatrous people, and, and it is a judgment of God upon on these inhabitants of the land by the hand of Israel. But as they enter, they're not only to lay waste to the people, but also to all of the altars. You know, Deuteronomy 12, the Lord commands them that they will live long in the earth and they should destroy the places where the nations uh, have gods and on high mountains and hills under every green tree, tear down the altars, dash them to pieces, the ashram with fire, 
chop down the carved images of their gods, destroy their name out of that place. Again, that blot out their name. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, meaning the way of everyone else, that that practicing of idolatry. I mean, this is this is the Lord saying, you should fear and love me. You shall have no other gods. And that's the issue at the heart of Joshua chapter 10 and their continual march through the land to inhabit the land that God had promised to dwell with them in and be in. Well, let's go ahead and pick up the text. We're in Joshua 10 this morning, beginning at verse 1. As soon as Adani Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adani Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoam, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jamuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Machadah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. And I'll pause there. That takes us through verse 15 of the text. So, Pastor Philippeck, as the text begins, we have some pretty direct connections to chapter 9, what spurs this alliance of these kings is what happened recently with Gibeon. Uh, remind us what happened with Gibeon and how that influences the first five verses of the text. Yeah, it has been a day. It's a, it's a nice refresher for that since we've encountered that because chapter nine is absolutely, I mean, 10 is absolutely dependent upon nine. So in nine, the Gibeonites really deceived Joshua and Israel. They had that command, remember, 
of God to destroy the inhabitants of the land. They did it at Ai, they did it at Jericho, and they are continuing marching through the land to take inhabitation of the land that the Lord had swore to give to them. Well, as they are going, they the Gibeonites tell them they're from a distant country and ask them to make a covenant in the name of the Lord their God. They don't want to be killed by Israel, but they want to be spared, and they want to live as servants. Well, Joshua and Israel agreed in the name of the Lord, but if you recall, they did not seek God's counsel in doing things like this. It's a very, very bad thing, right? It goes against what the Lord commanded Moses in Exodus and Deuteronomy and what he now commands Joshua. Joshua actually spares them, even though he was to put them to death. But when he finds out about their deceptions, he actually curses them. And that's kind of the end of of nine there. And that's an important thing to remember going into 10, because now you have Gibeon, which is a very big and very mighty city at the time. You have this getting wind to the king of Jerusalem, who is not Israelite at this time. No, though his name, you might think, actually is Adonai Zedek, right? The Lord of uh, is righteousness. And yet, it's kind of a humorous thing. Um, he hears, it's not like he and Gibeon don't know who Israel is. They have heard of Jericho, obviously. They've heard of I. And as you've gone through Joshua, they have also heard what the Lord God did to the Egyptians. This is the whole thing. I mean, everyone will know that I am the Lord. That is the refrain that ran through God's declaration to Moses, who then proclaimed that word to Pharaoh after each of the ten plagues, that then you will know that I am the Lord, that there's no such thing as these other false gods that you're worshiping. There's only one true God. And then as soon as it happens, as they stand on the banks of the Red Sea, over the course of these years through the wandering, over the 40 years and all of that sort of stuff, now they're in the land. And after 40 years, everybody still knows and everybody is terrified, right? So that's why the Gibeonites made peace. But when they hear that that peace has in fact been made by this mighty city, the king of Jerusalem does, Adonai Zedek sees kind of this as a traitor's move here, right? Uh, but a very terrifying thing for Jerusalem because Gibeon's mighty and now uh, Israel's mighty and they're aligned forces and uh, he wants to stomp them out before Jericho and I have have come upon them. You know, that, that there are instances as what has happened to Jericho and I, that they become the next one in the path of Israel and the Gibeonites on their side. So rather than make peace, they actually decide, unlike the Gibeonites who, who recognize, oh, this is the Lord's hand and we better get out of the way. They actually decide to war against. Uh, they actually make themselves enemies of God. <laughs> and this is quite shocking, right? I mean, you, you, everybody knows what's going to happen. They've heard it in Jericho, I in Egypt. And now the king of, of Jerusalem saying, oh, no, we're going we're gonna to send word to these other kings. We're going to have an alliance of five, and we're going to go out and oppose them, right? I, I don't think you really want to go to war against God and his people, right? You know what happens, but, but he does. And it's, it's quite shocking 
But I don't think it's rather surprising to us, Pastor Apple. I mean, this is this has been the narrative since even before the flood, when the hearts of all people were only continual e- evil, continually rather, only evil continually. Even back after the fall into sin, right? We are corrupted by sin. Jesus points this out, Mark 7, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within. They defile a person. Paul points to this. There's none who is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All sin, all fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. So being under the covenant of God and this peace makes you then at peace with God. Gibeon is at peace with God, even though it was a deceit and they have a, a, a curse on them and people grumbled at the leaders that they did this, but oh, we can't, we've made this covenant. Gibeon is at peace with Israel, so they are at peace with God. When you are at peace with God, you are an enemy of the world. And so this is no surprise that the world then would respond as... And our Lord Jesus says later on in, in John chapter 16, in this world, you will have trouble. Trouble is the norm. Sin is the norm. And that's what we see. It, the, the reaction of these kings against what has happened, as you said, is, is shocking and yet not surprising. And, and the, the shock in my mind, just thinking through Joshua as a narrative, is in the fact of, of what did happen in chapter 9. You know, maybe... Maybe if if all you have seen is the people of Israel march from one city to the next, and they take one city after the next, no trouble. I mean, of course, you have the incident in AI where there's the unfaithfulness, but that is resolved. So they've taken Jericho, they've taken AI. If you don't have chapter 9, then the alliance of the kings makes makes a little more sense, because you see, okay, these cities are falling one by one, we need to try to band together. But in chapter nine, you have the example of the Gibeonites, and and I know it's it's a bit strange because of the deception, but on the one hand, like it works, you know that the the people of Gibeon don't end up dead; they don't end up like Ai and Jericho, and so there there is a way out that has been revealed that involves peace, and and you know the Lord in His mercy, despite the way that His people didn't, they didn't inquire of him in the first place, the Lord in his mercy has allowed Gibeon to live. All of these other kings have seen that now. And so there's at least, it, it would seem, maybe from a, a logical standpoint, there's an option on the table that doesn't involve war and death and destruction. And yet these five kings choose the other way. They choose the way of war and enmity with the Lord and his people. And as you said, I, I think, you know, there's the shock to that. Like, well, hey, you know, you, you could have gone this way, but you didn't. And yet at the same time, there's not that it's not entirely surprising because we know the ways of the world. This is just another one of those examples, I think, in the scriptures where we see the the irrationality of unbelief. You know, it doesn't really make sense that they go this way, but they do. And that's that's the nature of unbelief. It doesn't make sense, but that's the way our sinful natures rebel against the Lord and his word. Absolutely. The, the other thing that I think you, you pointed out well, and this is, I, I guess I had just forgotten this, is that the these five kings who make this alliance, they actually go against Gibeon. They don't go right against Israel at Gilgal. They attack Gibeon. And just that, that's a, a striking thing that when you, you know, Gibeon has made peace with the Lord and his people, and now that means they've gained enemies. And that we would do well to remember that, that as, as those who 
who have been justified by the blood of Christ and, and who are at peace with God because of what Christ has done, that does make the world our enemy. And, and just to, to keep that in mind, as, as you very well quoted from John 16, that's the way of the world, right? We have trouble in this world, but of course we have Christ's promise as well. Take heart, he has overcome the world. And that is what Gibeon gets to experience here. So in Joshua 10, the, the kings have gathered, they've encamped against Gibeon, and so Gibeon, they're going to say, hey, Joshua, help us out. We've got this alliance. Uh, what what happens next? Yeah, God is remarkably consistent next. So since they are now aligned with Israel and they are thus at peace with God, and so the words of Jesus are still in place, I have not come to bring peace, but the sword, so, you know, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and so on and so forth. Like this is expected in this world, you will have trouble. Well, now you see the world <laughs> going against Gibeon, right? And and Gibeon is mighty. They're no slouch, uh, as has been told already by the king of Jerusalem. I mean, he fears them. And so we got to bring an alliance because we're just not going to go into war with Gibeon, which should tell you something, right? They're a mighty city. We need an alliance to overcome that. Well, they go after Gibeon, and Gibeon sends word to Joshua at Gilgal. And I like the phrase, do not relax your hand from your servants, because this is this goes back to what we were talking about with the city of Ai, right? In chapter eight, uh, Joshua's hand was stretched out. And anytime the hands are, are stretched out, you know, Joshua, Moses, God in the midst of his people fighting for his people. And so this, this idea was very clear, this phrase that, that called for Joshua to defeat the armies that are going against him against you know Gibeon at this time the, these five so he, it's a don't relax your hand but rather keep warring keep fighting the lord you know be with you in all of this and, and come and help us because they're seeking to snuff us out seeking to destroy us for making peace with you for being uh, traitors and you know Joshua it's, he marches all night right he marches all night and then the lord says to him though in all of this in the midst of this he says do not fear for i have given them into your hands that's the reoccurring theme right of joshua stand firm do not fear stand firm do not fear do not be afraid stand firm i mean here is this same thing coming up again because man oh man you got five kings against you that's something to fear you got a big army you're about to face and yeah you got gibeon but man, it's it's you and them, the you know, two on five, so to speak. And so the Lord, but the Lord says, no, you don't fear because I am going to give them into your hands. And this is huge. This is the Lord fighting for his people, willing to go and fulfill the promise he has made. God being very faithful to his word, uh, to uh, Jacob, yep, to um, Isaac, yep. To Abraham, yep. To Adam, yes. And this is this is what God has promised, and He is bringing it about through the hand of of Joshua. I'm going to pause there for a minute before um, we get into uh, the Lord fighting for His people. In case you wanted to to say anything on that, well, no. I mean, I think that that's all fantastic. And as you said, the the words of the Lord in verse eight. This is the 
This is the theme of Joshua that shows up over and over again, that there's no need to be afraid because you have the Lord's word. You, he is on your side. And as we'll, we'll hear later in the book, this was Professor Harstad's comment, that none of these promises of the Lord ever fail, that they always stand. And it's going to prove true here. Uh, as we've seen elsewhere in Joshua, when it comes time for battles, the battles often are different than we might have imagined them. There's not always the the human battle plan that we would have drawn up. The Lord doesn't tend to to follow those. And we see something similar here as the actual battle is described. You mentioned already Joshua he he hurries to the defense of Gibeon. He marches all night with his army. That's that's there in verse 9 and then we get to the description of the battle at least in part. Take us into to verses 10 where the Lord begins to fight for his people. Yeah, it is it is marvelous. We've seen God fight for his people before and we'll see him fight for his people after this in remarkably consistent ways. So the Lord throws them into a panic before Israel. Mm, That sounds like someone who we'll encounter mm, later on in the book of Judges when you start talking uh, about Gideon and a sword for the Lord, a sword for Gideon, right? I mean, this this is absolutely consistent. And before Gideon even had this, God is already fighting still here with Joshua before Gideon even exists. And before we even get to this battle, the Lord has already fought for his people, not just throwing them in the panic, but as they are fleeing, as we get going here in 11, the large stones rain down from heaven and they die. And then there's the addendum that there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So this is not like, oh, look at the might of Israel. Look at the might of Gibeon, this well-known city. Look at the might of man, the horses, the chariots, the horses, the chariots. I mean, that's Pharaoh right there. That's Pharaoh trusting in his horses and chariots. And God gained the glory over Pharaoh and his army. When he said to Moses, stand firm and see the salvation that the Lord brings for you today. The Lord will fight for you and you need only be silent. And he does. He stretches out his hand. The Lord is with him. The Lord fights for him. And Pharaoh and his army are thrown into panic with the sea coming upon them. And before there's even that, the third plague, very reminiscent of how God deals with the judgment of people, because the third plague that God sends upon the Egyptians is hailstones. And here we've got the hailstones again. So we see this glory is not man's and the glory of war is not in horses and chariots and the might of the flanks of the horses and chariots and the men's arms. No, it is in God alone. And he does more with hailstones than man can ever do. I mean, like I said, you made Gibeon is at peace with God because they are they are joined to Israel, and uh, the five kings didn't just go to war with Gibeon. They went to war with God himself and his people. And so the Lord then fights on behalf of his people. You you mentioned the connection to the Exodus, and I, I love that line in, in Exodus chapter 14, where Moses tells the people, you just, you stand there and be quiet and watch the Lord fight for you. And certainly the people of Gibeon now, get to see that firsthand this you know again this uh, how you exactly take the the deception that the gibeonites had you know they they still put themselves on the side of the lord and his people and now they see the blessing of that right alongside israel 
as the Lord fights for them. Now, as, as we think about the Lord fighting for his people and doing so in these ways that make it clear that he's the one fighting, you have on your notes here, this is the way that God fought at the cross. How, how does the, the fighting of the Lord for his people connect us to the cross of Christ? Absolutely. I wanted to give you a uh, chance to comment on that before I, before I went to the cross. Remarkably consistent. God continues to fight for his people. And we're even going to see this in the sun standing still aspect of this, that the whole cosmos is in battle, but not against uh, flesh and blood, against things far superior, the principalities, the ruler of this world, the devil himself, sin, and even death. Our Lord fights in the most straightforward and unusual way for men. Uh, he is like a lamb led to the slaughter. He opens not his mouth. He suffers the evil. He endures the judgment and justice of God. He is placed in the tomb, buried only on the third day to rise again with the same hands that he stretched out on the cross, only this time there forever in the wounds of Jesus are written the names, the names of God's people. Thomas can touch it and is invited to, and so are all of the disciples in the upper room. That Lord has fought for his people like he did in old with outstretched arms, only not the outstretched arms of Moses or Joshua, but the outstretched arms of his suffering servant, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus, the great high priest who offered himself as the sacrifice and there fought for us upon the cross. And we'll get to the crushing of the enemies under our feet and all of that good stuff. But this absolutely relates to the God who fought for us and overcame our greatest enemies. It's much stronger than any of the, of the five kings. Sin, death, and the power of the devil. And we needed only to be silent. That's right. Yeah. So be, be still and know that I am God, and, and then receive the victory that he has won through faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to keep looking at this text of Joshua 10 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking with Pastor Adam Filipek this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, October 21st. We're studying Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 to 27, with Pastor Adam Filipek. He serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Filipek, prior to the break, we made it up to the point in this chapter. We've seen the Lord fighting for his people. He has rained down large hailstones from heaven, and more of the enemies have died from the Lord's hailstones than the swords of the Israelites. And we now find ourselves at perhaps one of the more famous incidents in the book of Joshua. In verses 12 through 14, we have the account that in this battle, the Lord did something with the sun and the moon. They stopped in the sky in response to the prayer of Joshua, a rather strange event. And yet it is recorded for us in the Lord's word. What happens in verses 12 through 14? What should we make of this miracle that the Lord does? Yeah, I I like verse 12 because it draws all of creation into the working of God as is consistent with Genesis. You know, you see God creating things as is consistent with Jesus on the cross, which we'll get to in a minute. I mean, everything is the whole earth, sky, sun, moon, everything you see created is being drawn in to this battle of salvation for God's people. And that's remarkably consistent. Uh, God works that way through all. He performs the miracle at the Red Sea. Uh, Waters don't just part themselves. They don't just stand upright until, but that's what happens Uh, with Moses, the east wind stretching out the hands. God does that. Uh, Things don't just come into being uh, by themselves. And yet out of nothing, God says, let there be. And so there is. That's the power of, of this word. He creates in six days, even even the fourth day, sun, moon, and stars don't come in until the fourth day, even before that. Everything is all about God's working. And when God is at work for his people, when all is finished, then there's evening, then there's there's morning. And you see that in this aspect. So God performs a miracle. He's not done with just the hailstones. He's not yet there. In fact, we've got the kings to deal with and the kings to go after. And it all kind of culminates in that verse 14, the Lord fought for Israel. So he does. Gibeon has that prayer, the sun and the command, the sun stands still and uh, Gibeon and the moon and the valley, you know, this is Joshua here in the midst of this. And God is drawing all of his creation into this cosmic battle of salvation for his people that they might not be wiped out, but that God might remain faithful to his word and that he might actually execute judgment upon these idolatrous nations that have seen the word of the Lord, that have seen it in the Egyptians, that have seen his mighty hand in all of these miracles. They saw it at Jericho, they saw it at I, and they refused to believe it. And so now they're going against him. So, and the Lord, well, the wages of sin is death, right? When you go against the Lord and his word, the wages of sin is death. And God begins to execute his judgment, not only raining um, hailstones down from heaven, but then also um, in his in his people. So there is this day where they are fighting and they're they're through the words here they're not tired they keep going and when the lord is is done with this cosmic battle then (laughs) and only then is it all finished well that sounds very very reminiscent right genesis 
God completes after each day. And after each day, he sees that it's good. And then he calls it that because all he is exactly as he wants it. Everything is good. Everything is completed for that day. The first three days, there's no sun, moon, and stars, right? So it's interesting. It's not until four that you get signs, seasons, and all of these things, and, and how we typically experience the world and time and all of these different components of time uh, with seasons and years and clocks, and we all operate off of our watches that are sunk with uh, either, either the U.S. Naval Academy time or the Google servers or the Apple servers, and we're all synchronized, and we all have masters of time, and we all think we know this time and we're we're angry when people are late and all of this sorts of thing but but we have a god of time even before the sun moon and stars who orders things according to his work i mean th this is marvelous and to show how frivolous sometimes even our own efforts of controlling time are i mean look at our modern calendar we can't even account for all the days of the year Every couple of years, we got to have a leap year just, just to figure out, oh, okay, well, I, I guess I really don't know what to do with time. So let's just kind of add an extra day here, which doesn't solve anything, right? It just, it makes us feel, feel better, I guess. I don't know. But it's one of those things that God is the master of time. God is in control. And in that battle, in the he draws everything together as he did in the beginning. And as he did on the cross, right? There's, there's darkness yeah. over the whole land until the ninth hour. And it's only when Jesus has finished his work on the cross. It is finished to tell us die. Same sort of thing in Genesis, that that uh, everything continues and, and the darkness gives way um, to later on the dawning of, of the new day. Hmm. I'm glad you, you mentioned the cross there at the at the end of your comments, Pastor Philippe, because I, I was waiting for it to come when you, you used the words, it is finished, and then you took us to creation. I was like, wait, I thought he was going to go to the cross. So I'm, I'm glad you, you went there, because I think that's a, a fantastic connection to make as well, in addition to what happens with creation. But that, you know, the, it is finished, and the way that, you know, the, the Lord finishes the battle here, pointing us forward to the way the Lord finishes the battle and again, this is his doing. It's not ours, as we said on the, the previous side of the break. He does that on the cross. And there, you know, the sun is darkened for those three hours over the whole earth. Again, the Lord being master of time. And we we see the the connection, I think, to what's happening in the book of Joshua, that this is more than just, you know, military campaigns that we can draw on nice maps. And, and that's great to have the maps. But that actually what we're seeing here is a picture of the the finally the battle that the Lord is waging against our greatest enemies. And that's the battle that's fulfilled on the cross. I, I think it's it's a wonderful connection to make. And and it makes this, you know, what is a, a rather marvelous text and just a, a one that we are forced to wonder at that the Lord would do such a, a grand thing that we just don't understand, but he did it. It really opens it up and, and points us to Christ. I, I really love that. One one just and I this is a side note, perhaps, but any any thoughts on that note in verse 13? where the author says, is this not written in the book of Jashar, or however you pronounce that name? This is one of those interesting places in the scriptures where there's a reference to another book that, I, as far as I know, we don't have. Any any thoughts on the, the book of Jashar and the, the scriptures use of these other sources that, unfortunately, we don't, don't have? Yeah, so there are a few places where this happens. This happens in 2 Samuel, this happens in, in Corinthians. Uh, the first and second Corinthians, where you get this kind of this lost letter or this lost book. But this is just common knowledge to the people. I mean, to point to something like this is to to say that 
people just know this. Like this is common firsthand. Like duh. But we're we're here years later thinking, oh, this is not duh. I don't have that letter. Where is where is this? And and now this, you know, and this sends this sends people into all kinds of things. Like, oh, so the Bible's hiding things and it's trying to, you know, you get all these weird, weird theories and things like that. And it's like, no. When you start looking at lost letters and, and things like that, we, we don't have the book of Jashar, but uh, what is written in Jashar is clearly not against what we have, is it? Mm-hmm. The Lord fighting for his people because Joshua records this and it's consistent with that. And you might wonder about all, all of these things. Uh, we may find them one day, we may not, but it, here's the thing, it doesn't matter in terms of your faith, it might add a nuance to, oh, so that's kind of how the people of God saw it. And here, a little extra detail there, but it won't add anything more than Joshua than you already have. This is the great thing that people knew throughout it all. The Lord fought for his people in this way, at this time, in this place, answering the prayer of Joshua, right? I mean, this is the word of Joshua. So this is exactly um, reconcilable. And you may want to know it, but really all the Christian has is all the Christian needs right now, whether we find the book or not. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing in him, you have life in his name. That's John 20, uh, Luke chapter 24. You search, uh, I'm sorry, um, John 5, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you have life, but it is they that testify to me. Then Luke 24, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart, dear Cleopas and other disciple, how slow you are to believe that all that Moses and the prophets wrote concerning me. Like all of this is about me. So we have exactly what the Lord wants us to have in hand. And if we find the other one, well, obviously Joshua quotes it. So it's not going to contradict what we already have. That's right. That's right. Well said. I was I was thinking of the passage from John 20 as well, where, where the apostle says, look, there are many things that aren't written in this book. Just like this, Joshua doesn't write down what's already written in the book of Jashar, but what he does write, just like the apostle John, all of this is written that we might believe that Jesus is the Savior. And again, seeing the Lord fight for his people in Joshua 10, points us to the way that the Lord fights for us on the cross. Let's keep reading here in the text. The battle there at Gibeon now has been won, but there is still the matter of the five kings to deal with. So Joshua has returned to the camp of Gilgal, and now we pick up the text again in verse 16 of Joshua 10. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Machedah, and it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found, hidden in the cave at Machedah. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave, and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified fortified cities. Then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Machedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. 
And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. That takes us to the end of our text for today through Joshua 10, verse 27. So, Pastor Philippic, uh, take us in the first part. There's there's still some, I don't know, mop-up to the battle that needs to happen. The five kings go and hide. There's a remnant of the army before they deal with the five kings. Take us in oh, verses 16 to 21 to get started. Yeah, so I, I'm kind of going to do a big sweep because just since we read this, it's very interesting following on that same thought of the cosmic battle and God being remarkably consistent. So we've seen the sun, moon, and stars drawn into that battle already, both here and, of course, at the cross, that t- that to Telestai it is finished. Now what do we have? Huh, we have trees, we have tombs, <laughs> we have, you know, death, we have crushing of enemy. I mean, it's just, it's just the, Lord, the Lord is remarkably consistent in all this, and I hope to kind of draw this out uh, as we go along. But there is the the kings fleed. They hide in into obviously the the cave there, and there's the large stone rolled against the king, mm. <laughs> right? And yeah. the guards are set there, and yeah, we're gonna go in, we're gonna rear, we're gonna fight against them. God's given them into your hand, and there's that there's that fighting for the Lord again. So we've we're kind of yeah, like you said, mopping up this mess, and we're gonna go after these leaders who have gone against God. We're going to go after the enemies of God, those who are now completely cursed and don't fear because God has given them in your hand. So the Lord still remains on their side. He still fights for them, even against the kings. And when they had finished striking the great blow until they were wiped out, the remnant that remained on them and they entered the fortified cities and all the people returned safe to Joshua, right? So this is the Lord doing what he had set out to do and what he had promised when we entered into that cosmic battle with the sun standing still on the moon and all of those things. Now the work of the Lord is, is being finished among all of them until they are wiped out. Well, this is God being faithful again to what he had said with, with Moses ultimately in Exodus, you know, put to death the enemy nations, they'll become a snare to you and their idolatry. You're going to worship their gods. No, um, God is executing his judgment upon those who refuse to believe in him, even though they have heard and have also now seen, and yet they still oppose. So the Lord is kind of finishing up his work of these five kings that have gone against uh, Gibeon and ultimately him with Israel. And that's where we get then into the cave. And the cave is a very interesting thing because they bring the five kings out. And once the five kings are out, then on all of these things, he calls his chief men's of war and says, put your feet on the necks of the kings, right? And 
then they came near, they put their feet on the necks of the kings. And Joshua said, do not be afraid. Do not be strong. Be courageous for the Lord will do to all. And I think this is, this is worth emphasizing. Will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. So just in the immediate text, this serves, you've had five against two and look how the Lord has fought for you. How will he not graciously give you all that he has promised? This is his word. He will not go back on his word. He is faithful to his word. He has spoken. He will do it. And here is yet another example. And the example, oh, and, and it, the historic event here is really, really telling as well as God being, again, a remarkably consistent. Because when you start talking about all that Joshua has seen, again, this, this put your feet on the neck. You've got this foot. You've got the neck. You've got the, like, what is this? And then you see, again, as we've been talking about, the creator who in the fall into sin said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He said to the enemy, he, meaning this promised child, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So you have this this crushing of the enemy's head underfoot that is seen here when Joshua puts him to death. But ultimately, God, what God does for a few people in the Old Testament, the shadow he does for all people in Jesus Christ, the reality. In many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. Now in these latter days, he's spoken to us by his son. And so this promised child, actually came to do just that, to crush the head of the serpent, the great enemy, to trample down death under his own feet by his own death, so that where death arose, there might life rise again also. And the serpent who overcame by the tree in the garden might likewise be overcome by the tree of the cross. So you see this crushing of the serpent's head. It costs Jesus. It Bruce's heel. Yeah. The stone, the burial in the cave. He had to become the enemy of God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we who were enemies might become in him the very righteousness of God. Adopted sons, no longer enemies, but sons of God through faith in Christ that we may be incorporated into the promise of Abraham that we might be in the line of Abraham, that we might be through faith, Israel, who clings to God in the flesh of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, Paul also talks about this. What happened there at the cross will happen in all its completion. It will be forever fulfilled. The God of peace, St. Paul says in Romans 16, will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, St. Paul says. So this, this pointing forward to the day when God raises up all flesh and those who believe in him, he gives eternal life. And those who do not believe, he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. To that enemy and the last enemy to be crossed, the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. 
O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? So this, this is how God works, the crushing of the enemy as the Lord fights for his people, that his people might indeed receive the promise that God has spoken to them. You were talking toward the outset of this section about the cosmic battle and the way the Lord involves the cave and the rocks and the trees and and the connection that you made to Christ, particularly with the matter of the feet on the necks and what what Joshua says in verse 25 was fantastic. I, I can't help but notice the the irony then in verses 27, or I guess it's just verse 27, where where you have the trees and the stones all come into play. And, and you know, so you've got you've got the it's at the going down of the sun, and they take them down from the tree, they bury them in the cave, they put the large stone against the mouth of the cave, and they're there until this day, whenever Joshua was written at least. And they're they're there still. We would we would say that as well. It's it's just striking. There's going to come a day where someone's going to be taken down from a tree where he died, and it's going to be about the close of the day when that happens, and he's going to be put into a cave, and there's going to be a stone rolled in front of it, and there's going to be a guard set, and it's going to look pretty final, but the Lord's got a different thing that's going to happen on that day. I just can't help but but see those connections there at the end of our text for today. Absolutely, and this is this is where I, I went with, um, um, and I'm glad you articulated because this is that even more fully. This is where I went with God made him who knew no sin. So you see God at work fighting for his people through the hand of Joshua, and you see the crushing of the enemies. But both of these things merge together in the suffering servant whom the Lord's hand was against. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. And this is just it. It is written, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. So Jesus became the curse for us. He became an enemy of God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that we might receive the righteousness of God, that we might be set free from our enemies, that we might receive the victory of our God, the inheritance promised all the way back to Adam, that we may dwell eternally with our eternal Lord, free from our enemies. No more sorrow, no more sin, no more suffering, no more death. This is what is beautiful because you see in Scripture time and time again, Jesus Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins and the life of the world. It's there in the Old Testament, it's there in the New Testament, and it's there at the end. Christ is our life. Beginning to end, we fit into God's picture, not the other way around, not the other, you know, we fit God into our life. And our, No, this is, we're, we're part of this. We're part of this longer story from Genesis to Revelation where God fights for his people to give them the inheritance of the promised land, the very presence of God where they dwell, not as enemies, but as sons of God again through faith in Christ. Pastor Philippic, we have about three minutes left on the morning, and as we were starting our conversation, you you said something in effect that we're going to encounter in Joshua 10, war and bloodshed and executions, oh my. And, and certainly we have seen those things, and yet at the same time we have seen Christ. So help us to, to wrap this text up, and, and from this, this text that is kind of all over, there's lots of things here. What do we need to see? How do we use this text as Christians uh, so that we see Christ? I think that the Spirit uses this text in very, very poignant ways. One is to remind us what enemies of God and those who oppose God deserve. There is a judgment of God, 
There is a judgment of God upon sin. The wages of sin is death. Temporal death, earthly death, heart stops beating, eyelids close, and all the consequences thereof in time. But eternal death, cast into the outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you go against the Lord, if you war against the Lord, it will not go well for you. And so this text serves as a call to repentance to us who would put ourselves against the Lord in all words, in all thoughts, and all actions. But it drives us also to Yahweh Sabaoth, right? The, the Lord, the God of hosts. But for us fights the valiant one whom God himself elected. Ask ye who is this? Jesus Christ, it is of Sabaoth, Lord. The general, Jesus himself, rides out into battle for us to defeat our enemies, sin, death, and the devil, to crush them under his feet, that in the latter days, in the latter days when Christ returns and says, Arise and shine and come with me, the darkness is far gone, the day is at hand, Come and live with me. No more sorrow, no more sin, no more death. We may actually have our enemies at long last and forever crushed under our feet. That is God's promise. And in it is, yes, repentance and faith. And in it is the one who fights for us, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Pastor Adam Filipek is pastor at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota, helping us today with Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 to 27. Pastor Filipek, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Joshua chapter 10 or any of the book of Joshua, please send us an email kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week. 